John chapter 13, we'll begin at verse 12. Uh, Jesus there coming through the process of the foot washing. They're in the upper room for the Passover. Jesus there in verse 11 said that he knew who should betray him. Judas is there with the 12. Therefore said he, you are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said to them, know ye what I have done to you. Will you call me master and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, and there's three verily, verilys in here. Verily, verily, <clears throat> truly, truly, I say to you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. I speak not unto you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled, he that eateth bread with me had lifted up his heel against me. <clears throat> now I tell you before it comes that when it comes to pass, you may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me. And he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. And when Jesus said thus, said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, verily, verily. I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting <clears throat> of whom he spake. Uh, we are in this interesting scene. John gives us details. The other gospels don't give us about what was transpiring in the upper room, the foot washing. None of the other gospels tell us about this. Jesus taking the place of the lowest servant in the house. That would be his job to wash the feet out of courtesy. It wasn't a mandate, wasn't in the law. It was something that was done in hospitality and courtesy as folks would come. Because wearing sandals, their feet would be dusty. If there was mud, they'd be dirty. Nobody had thought to do that, none of the 12. And then Jesus will rise to do it. <clears throat> realize Peter and John early in the day it tells us Jesus had said to them go prepare ye the Passover that we might eat together so they had a long and busy day putting things in the room getting things ready and then they went to, to the temple to sacrifice the lamb interesting process <clears throat> in Exodus 12 when it was instituted it would be the father in the home, they would pick a lamb, watch it for four days, then take the lamb, sacrifice the lamb, roast the lamb in the house, put the blood on the doorpost and lentils so the angel of death would pass over. As time progressed and idolatry came into Israel, that was perverted. 
they were doing different things in different ways at different times with sacrifice, sacrificing to other gods. <clears throat> so by the first century, the priests in Herod's temple had taken hold of the process. So you brought a lamb that was without spot or blemish. Peter and John had done that earlier in the day. And Josephus tells us they would sacrifice approximately 200,000 lambs in this day. Ten person, two lambs, two million people. The population of Jerusalem had swelled and swelled. So many people came from outlying districts. One of the Roman records tell about going through a village on the way to the Mediterranean and nobody being in the village because the whole village had come up to Jerusalem for the Passover. So it was insane. It was crowded. And they would let groups of people, there were lines into where they would meet the priest and others would wait. The priest would then cut the throat of the animal and the animal would be sacrificed in that regards. His blood would then flow into a bowl. None of the bowls had square bottoms. They all had round bottoms so they couldn't be put down and defiled. The bowl then was passed from priest to priest to priest until it came to the altar and the blood was poured out on the altar. While that happened, the first priest gave a clean bowl to the priest that was doing the sacrificing. <clears throat> After the animal was bled out, during the rest of the year when it wasn't so crazy, they had hooks there in the temple where the animal would be placed on the hooks. It would be deboweled, it would be skinned and so forth, whatever the process at that time. But because so many came for the Passover, there wasn't enough opportunity for that to be followed. So, in fact, the vast majority of the sacrifices weren't on the hooks. The priests had pomegranate skewers there. Now, Joseph Tabaroy in Bar-Ilan University talks about it. Uh, Justin Martyr talked about it in the end of the first century. Uh, one of the professors that... Uh, Notre Dame speak about it. They would take that lamb then and they would push a pomegranate skewer through, through the shoulders in a particular way so it wouldn't break any of the bones. We know it says not a bone of him was broken. And then they would take the lamb and hang it on that pomegranate skewer and the priest would skin it, face, legs, take the skin, cut it down the middle, disembowel it, skin it. And then after he was done with that process, he'd wrap it in the skin again. They didn't have tinfoil. So they could take it back to then where they were celebrating the Passover. When they got back to where they were celebrating the Passover, they would take a second and longer pomegranate skewer and force it down the throat and out the buttocks. And on that longer skewer, put the animal on the fire where it would be, be roasted. So you had this lamb with a pomegranate skewer through the shoulders and one down through the middle. Philo, a Jewish rabbi at this time, said there were thousands of lambs crucified every Passover. You have to imagine there's an oven. Jesus is washing their feet. There's a lamb on a pomegranate skewer going around being roasted. The guys are arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. <clears throat> and Jesus, to put an end to all of that, takes off his garment, puts on that of a slave, 
and goes around and he washes all of their feet. Except it says there was one that wasn't washed. The idea is permanently by the grammar. And then it says in verse 12, so after he had washed their feet, you just have to have this scene here, how incredible. And it's etched and engraved on the mind of John as an old man. This whole scene. It says, so after he washed their feet and had taken the garments and was set down again, he said unto them, know ye what I have done unto you. Uh, the, the, the grammar is really, do you understand? It's that kind of knowing. Do you understand what I have done? He doesn't give them a chance to answer. He just sets the stage so he can give the answer. Know ye what I have done? And then he says this. You call me master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and your master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. So he tells them, look, he says, you call me master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. Now, it's interesting. It isn't you address me that way. He's not saying you address me as master and Lord. What he says here in the grammar, as you're talking to one another, you refer to me. You speak of me as master, the daskalos, the, the rabbi, the teacher. You referred to me as teacher, which is often called master, and Lord. And he commends them. That's good, because that's who I am. And it's the same, you know, you and I, we come to church. Hey, the Lord was showing me this. Hey, you know, this week I felt like the Lord spoke to me about this. You know, I feel like he's teaching me this. You and I, in the church for 2,000 years, have done that. When we speak of him, we call him Lord. We call him master. And he commends that. And you and I have that fellowship. You know, we, we look at each other. The world out there may think we're out of our minds, but we gather and say, hey, you know, the Lord told me this, or, you know, I feel like the Lord's putting this on my heart. It's, it's a completely different experience. And he says to them, that's what you guys do. I hear you. You're over there talking about me and saying, well, you know, the master said we should do this. Or, hey, you know, he said the, the Lord wants us... And Lord there, Kurios, there's a divine intention there because they weren't just calling him sir. So he says, when you guys speak of me, you call me master and you call me Lord. And when you do that, you're doing well because that's who I am. You're doing what's right. If I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet... Ye also ought to wash one another's feet. And he changes the, he reverses the order. They called him master and Lord. He says, if I then being your Lord and master. You know, because you and I, you know, master, teacher, we're learning many things. But until we get the Lord part down, we make decisions. I don't know if I want to do that. I know he says that's how I should treat my wife or my husband. I know that's how he says 
you know, I should pay my taxes. I know this is, you know, and, and, and it isn't until we're saying master and Lord. So when he says, he says, I, I'm being, not your master, Lord, your Lord and your master. And when we get things in that order, it's different. If he's our Lord, that's the only way we can be a servant. And if we call him Lord, it's, it's without doubt that we're realizing we are a servant. He said, if you call me Lord and teacher, he says, and I have washed your feet, then you ought also to wash one another's feet. He, and he's not, again, we'll talk about it, he's not instituting foot washing. He's saying, I've taken the lowest place. I'm willing to serve. They're there arguing over who's the greatest. The lamb is going around on the fire. And he said, you know, do you know what's going on here? John, as a 90-year-old man, how this must be alive in his mind. And he's thinking about what went on there and how little in some ways they understood. He said, if I stooped down, your Lord, your master, and washed your feet, took the lowest place, you should wash another's feet. You should serve one another. You should come alongside one another. You should be an encouragement to one another. You should help one another. There's nothing too menial. If I did this, you should do this. He says, for the reason being, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. I've given you an example that you, the tenses, should be doing. It should be the way we live. As I have done. You know. I have given you an example. It's interesting. That, that word means a template. A pattern. It's a picture. It's not tupos, which is an exact replica because he's not saying to them, you need to wash each other's feet all the time. He's not saying it's an exact replica. What would it ever mean to the Lord if every time we get together, we wash each other's feet and we go home? I mean, there's churches all around the country. They gather, they don't know Jesus, they're not born again, blah, 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 omni, 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 and they go home. What does that mean to him? What would it mean if this was mere repetition, if we just came and washed? He's not saying to the disciples from now on, you need to keep, watch, keep washing one another's feet. It's not in the Acts, not in the epistles. No. He's saying that position of the lowest person in the house, you should be willing to do that. I'm the Lord. I'm the master. I did it. Are you willing to do that with one another? That's the example, the pattern I've set in front of you. Not, I want an exact replica here of this thing. Look, it's easier to wash feet than it is to be a servant. If all you and I had to do was come and wash feet, it's kind of funky. But you know, you do that in 15 minutes, you're done. The Lord's happy. That's it for the week. That's not what he's talking about here. He says, then, in regards to his example, verily, verily, truly, truly, he's making a point now. I say unto you, the servant, doulos, the slave, is not greater than his Lord. If I did this, you should be willing to do this. Neither is he that is sent, interesting, apostolos, where we get our word uh, the, uh, apostle. Neither is he that is sent, 
greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. He said, look, here's the deal. Has he sent you? You know, it's not just in this age. This has gone on. The, the apostles were there in the early church. The church fathers, reformers, the history of the church. If you're a husband, you're a dad, you're a home fellowship leader, you feel like the Lord's telling you at work, go witness to this guy. You're the one who sent. You're not greater than the one who sent you. If you're a servant, you're not greater than your Lord. He said, if you know these things, if you realize this, your Lord is greater than you. The one who sends you is greater than you. But he stooped down and took the lowest place to serve. If you know these things, he says, happy are you if you do them. If you continue to do them is the idea. It's in a present tense. If you continue doing them. Uh, and the idea is doing them. It's emphatic there. It's a verb, but it's emphatic. It's present tense. But it means doing them always and on every occasion. Happy are you if you were doing these things always and on every occasion. Happiness. Look, the world out there is in pursuit of happiness. Whether it's losing weight, whether it's getting the legislation they want, what they think will make them happy. Skinny people are not any happier than anybody else. You know, yeah, you know getting a home gym because they think if they have muscles, they'll be happy. Now you won't. You'll be at the therapist all the time. You know, people think of what they pursue. If I have more money, if I have more pleasure, if I watch more pornography, if I get high, there's a pursuit of happiness. Look, the wonderful thing is that the world out there that's doing that now realizes the world they're living in is unraveling and their pursuit of happiness is an exercise in frustration. And you being sent to them because you serve him, they're hearing something now that they don't hear it. Yeah, there are going to be those who are there who hear or turn away like Judas. There are going to be those lost forever. But there are going to be those who hear, who listen. There are going to be those then that you and I can serve in the body of Christ. He said, he said if you know these things and you do them, you're doing them in every occasion, every opportunity, that's where real happiness comes from. That's where real blessed it comes from. Because if he's your Lord and your teacher, you're saying to him during the day, you know, you, you get this impression, you know, I want you to go help that guy. And you're thinking, well, is this me or is this the enemy or is this all? Of, no, it ain't the enemy and it ain't you because neither one of you want to do it. This is the Lord saying, go do that. Serve this person. Take a lower place. Get under them. Encourage them. Minister to them. Go to this person and share the gospel. Go to this group and, you know, make them a meal, whatever it might be. He said, if you know these things, and if you are constantly doing them in every opportunity and every occasion, then fulfillment, happy, then there's a blessedness about them for our lives. 
He moves then into verse 18, and some scholars say verse 18 then switches gears. No, 18 is attached to verse 17. I speak not of you all, those who are sent, those who be happy. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. And now I tell you before it come, that when it comes to pass, you may believe that I am he. So he says, I'm not, he, Judas was there. Uh, he, he understood what was going to happen. Jesus understood what was going to transpire. So I'm not speaking of you all. I know whom I have chosen. There's Peter. He's going to hack somebody's ear off. You know. There's Thomas. He's going to say, oh, yeah, I don't believe he's risen. Why don't you prove it to me? You know, he, he knows them. It says in chapter 2 that he didn't trust himself to men because he knew what was in man. When he sees Nathaniel for the first time, he said, oh, an Israelite without any guile. I saw you when you were under the fig tree. He sees Peter, and he says, you know, we're going to change your name to Rocky. You know, you just watch him. He knows men. He knows what's in them. And he said, and I've chosen you. He knows what's in us. And he's chosen us. He knew what he was getting. He's not disillusioned because he had no illusions when he picked us to get dissed. And he's telling us to do these things, and he knows we're not going to do them perfectly. The apostles didn't do them perfectly. The same author, John, through the Holy Spirit again, would say, you know, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm writing these things to you, little children. You don't sin, but if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous, who made propitiation for not just for your sins, the whole world. So he knew he would fail. He knew he wouldn't do things perfect. You may surprise yourself, but you don't surprise him. And he'll always have us back. Look, I think as we watch what's happening around us, the church should be realizing our gathering is more important than it's ever been before. The way I treat another Christian is more important than it's ever been before. <clears throat> and Lord, I messed up today. I didn't have that go serve him attitude. He cut me out in traffic <clears throat> and I had a different attitude, you know, where I heard they were gossiping about me. I had this attitude. But the remarkable thing is, he knows us. He knew who he had chosen. He knows us, and he chose us. We're not going to surprise him. He said, but there is scripture that needs to be fulfilled. And he goes back to Psalm 41. And he says, he that eateth bread with me had lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 41 gives a fuller description. David writing says, Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Yea, my own familiar friend, Kyle and Dealish, the Hebrew scholars say that should be even the man of my friendship. Even the man of my friendship, in whom I trusted, <clears throat> which did eat 
it says, of my bread. The idea is my bread, my table, had lifted up his heel against me. You know, David, no doubt, is talking about Ahithophel, who was his main counselor, until Ahithophel joined himself to Absalom in the rebellion against David. Now, Ahithophel may have had reason in his own mind, because he had a daughter, a granddaughter, I'm sorry, his granddaughter was named Bathsheba. And David had slept with his granddaughter and murdered her husband, Uriah. And Ahithophel, in his own mind, though God never approved it, may have thought, I can lift up my heel, I can kick back at this one, I can betray. But Judas had no such reason. Jesus is not saying this is a prophecy about Judas. He's saying this is a prophecy about me. Lifted up their heel against me. People think, you know, well, Judas had to do that to fulfill Scripture. You know, he had no option. He was predestined to burn. I'm not there yet. Some people are just way smarter than the rest of us. You know, the thing when I look at this, Jesus is different than us in that you and I have after knowledge. After something happens, we look back, hindsight is 2020, then we see the facts. We don't see them going ahead. We gripe, we complain, but we have after knowledge. Then after something happens, we can look back and see the facts, what was really going on, see things clearly. God doesn't have after knowledge. He has foreknowledge. And he's able to see the facts before any of them are realized in time. And this scene was written prophetically to describe a scene that Jesus himself would find himself in. And he describes that to us. He says here, you know, I speak not of you all, because he knew Judas. He said, I know him, those who I have chosen, but that the scripture may be filled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. He says, now, I tell you before it comes that, here's the reason, that when it is come to pass, you may believe that I am. He said, he said I'm telling you this ahead of time, not so you have some, you know, strange idea about prophecy and Judas not having a fruit. He said, I'm just telling you, so when it happens, your faith won't fail. When this happens, and it's going to happen, because I have seen it and I've known it, I know who I've chosen. I don't want you to think, man, we followed him. You know, the Romans took him and beat him. He's dead. He's crucified. We, you know, what are we going to do now? And they fled, you know. He said, I'm telling you this ahead of time, so when it happens, you might believe. In fact, the opposite of shaking your faith, that it would confirm your faith, that you'd be able to sit and say, this is exactly what he told us was going to take place. And of course, there, after knowledge was sharpened after the crucifixion and resurrection, the facts were more clear to them. But he said, the very reason I'm telling you this, you know, the prophetic 
has power. Jesus, on Matthew 24, he said, I've told you these things so that you would believe, so that you would know they're coming. Isaiah chapters 41 through 46, one of the greatest descriptions you read through over and over again, God says, I'm God. I'm not going to share my glory with anybody else. Who else could tell you the end from the beginning? And he's chastising them about idolatry. He said, go to your idols. Ask them, do they have mouths or have eyes? Can they tell you what's going to happen? I can tell you what's going to happen. I've decreed it. It shall come to pass. And he uses prophecy as a very clear evidence of the fact that he stands outside of our time dimension and he knows the end from the beginning and he is who he says that he is. Jesus here says, now I'm telling you this fact about what's transpiring so that you'll believe and not be shaken in your faith. And then a verily, verily again, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me. And he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. He says, because of this tragedy is going to play. Your, your commission remains the same. You still are those who are sent. Again, the apostolos. Because this happens, it doesn't change God's calling. You know, for you and I, and it's something I have to think about all the time, bad things happen in our life. It doesn't change the fact he's called us. He's given life to us. We're his sons and daughters. You know, I think of our brethren in Ukraine. I think of our brethren in other parts of the world where there's martyrdom and the things that are happening, Jesus is saying, doesn't change our relationship one bit. My kingdom's not of this world. I want you to believe. And I've told you long ago, all of these things would take place. But he's calling those people to say, Lord, and you and I, Lord, and then teach her. And then to realize fulfillment, happiness is in doing the things they ask us to do. What are those things? Well, he set the example. He gave us the template. So we're willing to serve. We're willing to put our pride aside. And there's no, too, there's no task too menial. Because he's always our point of comparison. You throw all other human comparisons out the window, what he's saying here, and you only compare yourself to me. I'm your example. Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 10, 12, that those who compare themselves among themselves are not wise. That's no comparison. We're not being conformed into each other's image and likeness. We're being conformed into him, his image and likeness. It's only as we compare ourselves with him as our example that we can see how short we constantly fall and how need, much need we are and of his presence and his fellowship and Jesus says, and understand when I send you. And he knows who he's sending. Us? It's almost miraculous. He's sending us. And he says, and whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. Now, it's interesting because the word there, receiveth, it's, it's present tense, continues to receive. But it is receiving not in spite of. It, is, it should be better translated, welcome. Whoever welcomes you, welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me, welcomes the one who sent me. And look, the world we're in. A lot of hostile people. But there's a lot of people, as that hostility grows, their brokenness is growing. 
and they are welcoming the message about Jesus Christ. And when they welcome that, they're welcoming him, they will come to realize. And when they welcome him, they welcome the God that sent him. Our commission's just to go. There's gonna be betrayal, there's gonna be difficulty. Prophecy tells us about where we're living, but he's sending us. We're not greater than the one who sent us, who washed feet, but he's sending us. And he knows us, he knows who he's chosen. Remarkable? And he sends us anyway. And whoever continues to welcome us is welcoming him with the message that we bring. And when Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in the spirit and testified and said, John puts two phrases together, testified and said, then the verily, verily again, verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. He must have dropped like a bomb. Look, Judas the betrayer has not yet left the Passover dinner. Before Jesus establishes the bread and the cup, Judas is gone. You study the Passover dinner, there were at least 10 stages. There were first cups and beginning of different prayers, different songs. And it wasn't until the last cup at the end when Jesus established the Passover dinner. But in this process, it was, Jesus here is the host. Jesus here is setting the example. You know, the, the, the lamb is probably taken off the spit at some point. The whole washing feet took a while. And then it says that the host or the father would reiterate the entire Passover story from Exodus to those at the table. You imagine Jesus telling them what it really meant for the blood of the lamb to be on the doorpost at the lentil what the Passover really talked about in regards to God's grace that he did. They listened to him amazed. They stopped arguing about who's going to be the greatest. They're hearing his exhortation about serving one another. But when he talked about Judas, it says he was troubled in his spirit. We, we hear about waters that are troubled. It means agitated. You know, here's Jesus, the God-man. He came and took on human flesh. He walked among us. He knows what it is to be weary. He knows what it is to be tired. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to be betrayed. And for anyone in this room who's been betrayed, and if you haven't, wait long enough. It's a mandatory course, not an elective. But, you know, for anyone who needs encouraging about betrayal, he's gone there before you. And he was troubled in his heart. This, he had feelings, he had emotions, was troubled. You know, I, I read it and I think, Lord, you know, every day I have to bring my failings before him. I, I, I don't, it doesn't keep me away anymore. I'm like, you know, I flee to him because I know his love and his grace. And it's become more than that. I look at him troubled here and I think, Lord, I didn't mean to trouble you today when I did that. Lord, forgive me if I hurt your feelings. I know you have feelings. He, when he talks about himself in chapter 14, he says, I have been with you, but I shall be in you. James is going to tell us that the spirit lusteth to envy. He, he lusts over us. He wants us for himself. Paul says we shouldn't grieve, the same word mourning for a dead person. We shouldn't grieve the Holy Spirit. 
we, ha we have the, the potential to affect his feelings. And, and in the personal relationship, we call him Lord Master. How remarkable that you and I can go and say, Lord, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. Forgive me. I was looking at something I shouldn't have looked at. I said something I should have said. I reacted in a way I should not have reacted. I partook of something I shouldn't have partaken of. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. Because here, his spirit is troubled. Because this one who had lifted up his heel against him, who had ate at his table and of his bread, and hospitality in that day, to betray hospitality was the greatest form of treachery. You open your home, you open your table. Even in, in the, the Middle East today, if you can go into the house of a Muslim, and if they offer hospitality and they feed you, no one can touch you there. It's sacred. You have their protection. And again, Ahithophel may have had a reason to betray David, but Judas had no reason to betray Jesus Christ. It was something he did in himself. He's not going to hang himself like Ahithophel did just to fulfill scripture. He's part and partial. His will's involved. He decided, I'm going to turn away from him. And Jesus is troubled over that. Remarkably, he's troubled over it. It's the third time we've been told that. In chapter 11, verse 33, I believe, he's there at the tomb of Lazarus, and he sees the Jews weeping, and the girls that he loves, Mary and Martha, and it says there he was troubled, same word, in his spirit. In chapter 12, and I believe it's at verse 27, when the Greeks come to him, want to see him, he's realizing the Jews are going to turn away, and this gospel is going to go to the Gentile world, and he says, but a, a grain of wheat abides alone, unless it falls into the ground and dies. And then it brings forth much fruit. And he says, Father, what should I say? Deliver me for this hour, from this hour that you've brought me to. And it says he was troubled there. Same word. And here now in regards to Judas, each time it's, it's a different thing, but it's related to death. And he has this capacity He's made himself that human, that vulnerable. He's troubled in his spirit. And no doubt it's visible because John, he didn't say, John, when you're an old man, write this down. This is really a bummer. That didn't happen. John's thinking of the look in his face. John was there and it was evident. He was troubled in his spirit. And he said, one of you is going to betray me. And I'm sure that dropped like a bomb. Because in the next verse, it says they all started to look at each other. You know, you know, it doesn't say everybody in the room looked at Judas. You know, it says they all started to look at each other. Uh, Matthew and Mark tell us they started to say, well, surely it's not me, right, Lord? Because they all knew their own potential to betray. In fact, none of them said it was Judas. In fact, as Jesus exposes them, next week we'll look at it, and he goes out. They say they thought he was going out to, to, get, to buy something. He was run, going down to Wawa. Doesn't say that, but my, <clears throat> they never suspected him. He was with them day and night, several years, 24 and 7, 
And in that time, Judas ate at the table with him. Judas watched Jesus. He saw the miracles. Judas went out and performed the miracles that Jesus gave him power to do. Jesus, Judas heard the laughter that none of us heard. Judas watched him interact with, with the disciples. Judas knew the conversations that took place that are not written for us. He had sat at his table. He had eaten from his bread, as it were. And the Lord is troubled now because it's turning to betrayal. One of you is going to betray me. And they all begin to look at each other. And they all say, well, certainly, Lord, it's not me. Is it a remarkable picture brought before us? So uh, for you and for I, I go through this passage and I look at it. And next week, we'll, if God tarries, we'll continue the picture into Judas himself. John has more to say about Judas than the other Gospels. It gives us more details. What's he doing? He's there at the table. He's taking the place of the host, and yet he, does, he washes the feet that the servant would normally do. You got the, the lamb with the skewers looking like a crucifixion turning on the fire while they're arguing about who's going to be greatest. And he's, he's got it. So he, he does the deal. He puts on the clothes of the servant, takes the towel, washes their feet. How long did that take? John remembers the, the feeling of this, the, the hands of the master, the Lord, on his feet in the water and wiping his feet with a towel. That's engraved in his mind, and his heart. It will never be lost. <clears throat> and he says, and the Lord wanted us to know. He knew us. He knew what he, was in us when he chose us. He knew what was in each of us in this room when he chose us paid for us in his blood, knew what he was getting. He knows what we were, he knows what we are, and he knows what we're going to be. That's wonderful. What we're going to be is wonderful. <clears throat> what we ain't yet. That'd be a good sweatshirt, by the way. I ain't yet. And then unbelievers would always say, what in the world does that mean? And you would have the chance to tell them. But he chose us. Look, you and I... The example he set, the, the template, the pattern, is service, to serve one another. That's easier said than done. It's harder to be a servant than a foot washer. He wants us to live that way in continuance, and he said there's a blessedness in that for us. And he certainly doesn't want us comparing ourselves one with another because the pattern, the example, is him. And when we make our comparison, we look at where we are, we look at what he is, then we realize everything still needs to happen in our lives. But the wonderful thing is we see him troubled over one of these men that's turning away a betrayer. He's troubled. And we can go to him because he knows us. And say, Lord, I'm sorry if I troubled you today. I am sorry, Lord, if I hurt your feelings. I mean, he's, he's condescended to that place. In fact, John in chapter 16, he uses the word agape. He loves us a lot. But then he says, he filios us. He's fond of us. You know, sometimes they think God's got to love me. He's God. But he likes me, too. That's very profound. He not only loves me, he likes me. 
I can go to my wife or I can go to another Christian and say, you know, I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. Forgive me, I didn't mean that. And he's calling us to that intimacy. And John has painted the picture for us and put it before us through the Holy Spirit so we can know. Let's serve one another. Amen? Amen. You sound excited. (laughs) Let's go speak to an unsaved world because we know that if they receive, they welcome what we're saying. They're welcoming him. Amen? Uh, Let's know not to compare ourselves among ourselves as we do all of these things. Amen? Uh, Let's stand and let's pray. Amen? Read ahead, certainly. Father, we look to you this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, we, we, we thank you that the words can rise off the page and paint, Lord, that our ears turn into eyes. And by your spirit, Lord, you bring these things across our hearts, Lord. And Lord, you are the greatest and you stoop the lowest. And you have set an example for us, Lord. And you know our carnal nature kicks against that so often. Lord, I'm aware every single day, Lord Jesus, as I compare myself with you, I'm aware every day of the things in my life that are, that are not Christ-like. They're not like you, Lord Jesus, every day. And none of us ever mean to hurt you, Lord. Forgive us. Lead us. Continue the good work you've begun in us. Let us grow in grace and in the knowledge of who you are, Lord Jesus. And we pray in your name. Amen.